This is an RNZ podcast. Uh, to my right here, and a lot of the cars that they were staying in have been towed and seized as well. So unless police are able to arrest their way through this very large cr- large crowd this evening, you're going to have hundreds of people still out on the street spoiling for a fight, and that could get messy. And there are hundreds and hundreds of police down there as well at the same time, so hopefully it all turns out OK. That was TVNZ One News on the 2nd of March 2022, the day the occupation of Parliament came to an end after almost a month. And the messiness that reporter Kristen Hall predicted there did indeed play out, and it spread beyond the parliamentary precinct that day. And whether it all turned out OK in the end, as Simon Dallow said there, really depends on where you stood on the issues involved and the conduct of those who were protesting at that time. TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay was also startled by the scene she'd seen in central Wellington later that day. Did you ever imagine that you would witness scenes like this in New Zealand? No, and, and I think that's the thing that's a little bit challenging. And I, I think as a journalist, you always want to be a bit low-key about these things and perhaps reflect on them later. But it's just not a scene that we thought we'd ever seen here. It's a different type of protest. It's a very foreign type of protest that's here. It's pretty... But while it may have felt foreign, that homegrown chaos was also seen by people all over the country and by Kiwis in foreign fields too, because several of our media outlets live-streamed hours of coverage of it. The public were certainly interested in those images. Civil servants rubbernecking digitally from the safety of their workstations reportedly strained the servers of government departments. But some of the media at the time questioned the real public interest in airing all of this because they said it amplified unfiltered misinformation and the extremism of the protesters, whose numbers were actually dwindling at that point. Now, at the time, the editor of Stuff's Dominion Post, Anna Fifield, told Media Watch that it wasn't just a case of pointing a camera or two at the drama and letting it roll online. We have a duty to report a relatively big protest on the grounds of Parliament that is disrupting our city, but I'm really conscious that we need to do it in a way that does not amplify their messages. As you say, they're very fringe most entirely based on misinformation and disinformation. So we have been taking steps to make sure that we don't amplify their conspiracy theories. Uh, You know, we are careful in the way we crop photos. A lot of that live stream has been focused on the police and what they are doing to try to maintain security at Parliament. Um, And so, yeah, I think that we have a duty to cover it, but in in a careful and sober way. And I hope we got that balance right this week. Anna Fifield also said a year ago that others were airing the occupation online for propaganda purposes and without any journalistic ethics in the mix at all. And, she added, all this would end up being a part of our history. Just imagine if we had such full footage in the archives from undeniably historic protests in 1981 or even 1951. Well, RNZ lately has been looking back at its archive video of the occupation last year for the new documentary Boiling Point, which was released last Thursday on the anniversary of the occupation's chaotic end. The protesters and police have been pushing against each other for ages. And then suddenly I just see a police officer ripped to the ground and pulled right in amongst the protesters. guys just bear down on him, kicking him, and I remember seeing him on the ground and just thinking, one bad hit to the back of his head and he's gone. 
Now, Boiling Point isn't the first film to try and sum up what happened at that time retrospectively. Stuff's documentary Fire and Fury last year looked back at that too, as well as the misinformation that fueled it. And while there's some of the Fire and Fury in the scenes of Boiling Point, the focus is on why and how it all came to an end in the way it did. To be honest with you, I don't like to say it, but I think violent, violent, yeah, violently. And Boiling Point also portrays the dissonance among the crowd, not all of whom wanted confrontation. Though some did specifically want to confront the news media. This woman starts screaming at me, calling me a, a mainstream, swinging this camping chair at me. And all these other people start turning on me as well. Get out, mainstream media, get out! Get out of here! Out. Out. Watch out, guys, watch out! Literally watch out. While there's police behind her, charging and taking over the whole lawn, they still chose to turn on me. And I just could not wrap my head around that. Get that mainstream out of your own safety. That was the voice of RNZ visual journalist Angus Drever, who not only captured some of the compelling footage in the documentary Boiling Point at some personal risk, he also directed it, working alongside John Hartevelt, who just this week was appointed as RNZ's executive editor for the in-depth journalism unit. The events were, whilst they were over a number of weeks, three weeks, almost almost a month, they were pretty frenetic, actually, at the time. You know, the live news nature of live, live news coverage was such that it was a lot for people to, to try and soak up all at once. And then there was a bit of reflection in the immediate aftermath. But then, of course, you know, the news cycle moves on and um, we're on to the next thing. So a year hence is probably a good moment to pause and look back and actually just slowly and carefully digest the images that, that we all saw. The second kind of unique thing that we had here was that um, Angus was very much a part of um, that coverage at the time and and collected a lot of pretty arresting footage, um, unique perspectives, um, many of which there just simply wasn't space to put to air um, and, and to get an audience for at the time. So... Um, Angus and and, uh, and Corin had an idea to um, go back over a, a lot of what was collected and and put something long form together that enabled us to achieve that kind of look back over what undeniably was a really extraordinary moment in time for this country. Yeah, and Angus, as John mentioned there, you people, I mean, you were there in the cast of thousands of people watching you and everybody else on these live streams and, and watching this whole thing unfold. I mean, did you have a feeling then people might get the wrong idea of what happened if they don't watch something that's a bit more curated that you've now had the opportunity to do? Yeah, no, I definitely had that feeling. And so you could have a camera live streaming from one perspective and you're going to miss all these other things. Um, and it's something you can get wrong in the documentary. If you don't get a shot from this street, you might miss some really important context. You might get the balance wrong. So it's something that we really wanted to take our time with and make sure that we told a story that... Um, was fair representation and that we felt really comfortable with it rather than, you know, live streaming from one perspective for 12 hours and saying, hey, that's the truth. Well, John, most of the people speaking are 
RNZ staff, and including you know Angus, who was there, of course. Um, but there's also a couple of uh, contributions from eyewitnesses who, who gave their accounts in the media at the time. So, for example, former MP and diplomat Tim Grosser, um, who lived nearby, uh, appears in Boiling Point. And he says, look, uh, at times he feared we might be seeing a repeat of January the 6th uh, mm. in Washington. Did that actually influence what you were trying to put together with Boiling Point? The parallels um, with the US were clear to all of us. I mean, uh, it was something that was talked about at the time. And so, and, it, and we did, you know, have a particular discussion around the title as well, you know, so the, the full version of the um, title for the documentary is Boiling Point March 2, um, which is a, um, a kind of subtle nod um, to those parallels with, um, with DC. So, but I wouldn't say that we kind of went, spent hours poring over um, examples of other documentaries from from the states that have looked, you know, blow by blow, and um, Angus and Corin had a really clear idea of the type of documentary that they wanted to make. To be brutally, completely honest, I mean, we don't have the kind of resources to do that, that really, really detailed, um, intense kind of visual investigative journalism. Yeah, you, mean, you mentioned their Corin Dan's role, so as uh, both presenter and, and producing the the documentary, and and you know, his voice is fairly familiar when you listen to it. Gives it the feel of a kind of. Uh, traditional sort of TV documentary in a way. But one thing that I think is different, and Angus, it's good that you're here with me, is that, you know, the camera person in this is often just kind of anonymous, just provides the vision for this stuff. And we, you know, we have a presenter's track over it, often even left out of the editing process. I mean, this one's different. You directed it. I mean, was this a conscious decision that you wanted that role and wider input? Yeah, it was a conscious decision, but to an extent it was made for us. Um, ideally, in a documentary, you know, the cameraman's this, this invisible hand that's sort of guiding the audience to the, the truth and the visuals. But um, on the ground, while I was filming, the, the fourth wall was being broken constantly. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, people were talking to me, and I felt like uh, I would have to explain, okay, I moved over here because this thing was happening. And when that lady attacked me, it felt like this. And I think if I hadn't said anything, it would have felt weird and almost more dishonest to pretend like I wasn't feeling anything. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, yeah, important to explain even just my movements and why I moved from Hill Street over to the Court of Appeal and things like that. Yeah, John, as a, a sort of executive editor, I mean, these days some reports, when they're presented, the presenter will make a point of saying who shot it and not just, you know, the journalist whose voice or face is on it. Is this a, a kind of idea whose time has come in our media and that we should acknowledge that the gathering of the images is editorially significant? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think it's storytelling is constantly evolving um, and, and, you know, the platforms that um, people are, are getting their news and information and entertainment from, um, social media probably being the obvious one, um, set a kind of new set of expectations and, and habits and uh, for, for people when they're, when they're watching video in particular. Um, so I think there is a kind of a natural um, evolution there. Uh, but I would put, yeah, really very much put the emphasis on natural. So I think in, the, in this case, it was, it was really an obvious thing. To, it was sort of what, part of what made this documentary special was, was the Angus part of it. I mean, here's a guy um, who's almost, you know, a few months into the job um, as, as a journalist who's um, thrust into the thick of a massive news story and, and putting himself in, in physical danger and get these remarkable images, you cannot help but take that to be part of the story. Um, so it would be almost um, weird to to remove Angus from that. Um, so we kind of leant into it. It must have been really tempting to simply 
you know, trawl back through all the footage that you and colleagues shot, um, pick out the most alarming or confronting, the most spectacular stuff, if I can put it like that. But look, in my opinion, some of the more revealing scenes in it are ones where you see a bit of the dissonance within the crowd. So you could see someone, for example, um, confronting the crowd, yelling about, you police, you know, you're Nazis, and this is the Holocaust, and things like that. And someone walking up to him saying, don't talk about the Holocaust. You could see that dissonance within the crowd and about how they presented themselves. Was that also a conscious choice that you wanted to show that? Yeah, and I think that was the thing that excited me more than, you know, the shots of explosions and things like that. You know, that, that stuff's... We've all seen the shots of the playground burning, and that's the thing I think is burnt in our brains. But we didn't really get to see too much from the live streams of those sort of sorts of conversations. And I think that stuff is really interesting. And and then seeing people online or on the street talking about the entire group as this one mob that all felt the same way. And when um, I couldn't help but be a little frustrated because I could see that there were different groups and there were interactions within the protesters. And I think it's really important for us to remember that. You know, that to me is the power of visual journalism in many ways because there was a lot of stuff written at the time that kind of referenced, you know, there was complexity to the group, even on the, the last day and in the final hours. One of the scenes that really stands out for me is where you have this young guy biffing this huge lug of um, hunk of concrete into the ground as hard as he can to break it up. And then you have this other guy kind of like with his back to the police and, and it's, he's facing this group of completely lawless um, uh, people remonstrating with them that, hey, you, you know, you've got to stop this. And it's just, you cannot help but be compelled by that. It's, it's remarkable footage. This isn't the first film to have a, a look at this in a documentary way. Uh, stuff got in first, if you like, with the, the documentary Fire and Fury. They zeroed in on some of the misinformation, the stuff in the background. But they also followed up with some of the people in the thick of it. Did you actually think about that, John, about including some of those people going back to them and, and rethink that day from their perspective as well? We set out to make a documentary that is what it is um, and, and, and focuses very much on the timeline of events on that final day. Um, if we had uh, more time and, and more people had been able to call in to work on the documentary, then absolutely we, that, those are things that we would have done. I mean, I think you're that, right. That's that, a really different decision, though, eh? because people get upset about that, about you know, platforming is the word that gets used, you know, if you, you know, gives, giving them an opportunity to say those things that some people found so offensive and disruptive and destructive and so yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a natural... Um, it's good to have those discussions and, and interrogate that, um, but it's absolutely a natural thing to do. I mean, a year on to go back and, and talk to these people and um, get some understanding of how their thinking may or may not have evolved. You know, and I think in a lot of cases it's probably hardened. The resolve and the kind of views have, have hardened. And I think that, that that work is still to be done. There's still more conversations to be had. There's still more reporting to do on this story. It wasn't an editorial decision to not do that, I guess. It's, that probably ultimately answers your question. Angus, having done this, having spent all this time on it, <laughs> having to revisit it a year ago, it was a stressful experience for you and everyone in the media who had to be in the thick of it. Uh, do you consider you're kind of done with this? And uh, maybe if there is more reporting to do, perhaps you don't want to be the one to have to make them? Yeah, to be honest, um, that is kind of how I feel. It's been March 2nd, 2022, pretty much every day for the last year. <laughs> um, there have been times when it's been really hard to go back and, and revisit it. But I remember the first couple of months I couldn't watch the footage for more than 10 minutes or so before I needed to go for a walk or something like that. 
and it got better. But actually, towards the end, where it all started to come together, those sort of panicky feelings started to come back, and I sort of took that as a sign that hey, we're probably getting it right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I'm personally pretty happy to to move on. Well, John, um, it is possible we'll see something like this in the future, where hundreds of people want to take on the government over some issue that's um, divided us. You know, is there anything we can learn from this? Like, how should we go about? trying to cover this so that we're actually in a position to create something later that yeah, makes I mean, sense and really records it in a, in a way that helps people understand it. I don't know that I have a, a profound golden rule that has come out of covering an event like this. but no, no template for it, is there really? No, but I mean, I, I do know that there is a clear recognition now that the next big story is is, is at any moment <laughs> before us. And so we're thinking about that a lot, both in terms of the way that we cover our stories, but also our people, you know, taking care of our journalists. So there's, yeah, and also I think, that I suppose there is a golden rule, but it's not a new one, is to just continually have an open mind about the way we're covering stories and, and, and be challenged on the way that we're making our decisions and, and who we are platforming. Um, it's really important that we that we continue to talk about that and, and have open and frank discussions about the right thing. Mm. And actually, you're in a position to do something about that. Just coincidentally, this week you were appointed as the executive editor of RNZ's in-depth team. But some listeners might be thinking, well, you know, hopefully uh, most of what RNZ does is uh, at least in some degree of depth. Um, So for for those who might be curious, what exactly does that mean? How is it distinct from the rest of RNZ's journalism and what might you able to to do in that job you couldn't do elsewhere in, in the business? There's probably a couple of layers to it. Um, One is that there is a a formal in-depth team, um, relatively small team, but um, we have a handful of um, really top, highly experienced uh, investigative journalists um, who are um, reporting to me and we're identifying um, stories that we want to break um, and spending a good amount of time reporting those stories out to the full extent uh, that we need to and telling them um, across our platforms, um, digital Radio, social media, the whole, the whole um, gamut. So, sort of removed from the day-to-day. Early yeah, exactly. Oh, yes, absolutely. And so that those reporters, um, and you know, there's graphic designer in there, data journalist as well, camera operator. I mean, the other part of it is that um, we're here. I'm here, and the whole team is here, is to support um, journalists from all across the organisation. Um, and, and telling those stories with greater depth. Um, and that, that's a time thing, um, but it's also a, um, a resource thing in terms of, uh, as I say, the, the power of visual storytelling. You know, how can we um, power up the story more and kind of connect it to our audiences um, with the use of a really skilled um, um, visual journalist, um, a graphic designer, data journalist, um, and, and hopefully, you know, I can bring a bit of... Um, something to the, to the table as well um, to tell those stories in, in a bit a bit more depth. Um, so that that, that is both breaking original stories and also you know existing issues and and um, and stories at the time adding in layers of value um, and information to to those um, major stories. Mm. And finally, then Angus, uh, you can take a bit of a breath now as you say March the second every day for the last year doesn't <laughs> sound that great. Uh, but look, in, in uh, I know you had one particular encounter on that day where um, a woman came at you swinging a camping chair, I mm. think, and you, you know you said at the time it struggled to sort of get your head around why, with all the things that were going on, she want to go for you. I think you were being called a mainstream mm. uh, in yeah. that particular encounter. <laughs> so pretty clear what, what was motivating that. I suppose probably not personal, but have you now? perhaps got your head around that sort of thing a little more? 
I feel like it was probably just an element of control. I mean, this is their home for three weeks, and it, they were losing it. So I, I think she couldn't fight off the wall of police that were coming down towards them, but she could swing a chair at a mainstream media person. Um, so I, I think it was about control and doing something practical, even though it was, you know, ultimately pretty pointless. That was RNZ visual journalist Angus Drever, who directed RNZ's video documentary Boiling Point, and we also heard there from its executive editor, John Hartevelt, who, as you heard there, was just this week appointed as executive editor of RNZ's in-depth journalism unit. And you can see Boiling Point, which was presented and produced by Corin Dan, on the RNZ website in the podcasts and series section, where you'll also find photo essays and follow-up features on the occupation of Parliament and how it all came to an end a year ago this week.